verse 18, we read the following Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ here has been teaching about the word of God. We saw last week how Jesus has been explaining that the law of God and the prophets were pointing God's people to Jesus. John chapter five, Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And Jesus reminded the Pharisees and others that they spoke of him. Jesus Christ, boys and girls, is central to the message of the Bible. The Old Testament points us towards Jesus Christ and the New Testament confirms that. And so Jesus told us last week that the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached, everyone forcing his way into it. Now, we come to another section here in verse 18 where Jesus is still explaining, I think, the law of God and how we are to understand this. Because you'll remember that the Pharisees were often distorting the Bible. Now, the, the Pharisees often, both in Jesus' day and today, often have seemingly a reputation that they are really upholding the law of God. That they are the standard bearers of God's law. And I think one of the things that we see in our text here, but also we see it, I think, even more so in Matthew's account, because Matthew goes into greater detail of this passage, and Matthew explains it more in the Sermon on the Mount, that really, far from being standard bearers of the law of God, the Pharisees often were perverters of God's law. They actually lowered the standard of God's law. That the law, they made it easier, quote unquote, to obey so that they could be self-righteous. But the law was never to be understood that way. The law was to be seen as high and holy and for a sinner, hopelessly unattainable. Except for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That was the purpose of the law, to instruct us, to tutor us to Jesus Christ. And it should not surprise us that when it came to the seventh commandment and the commandments surrounding marriage, that the Pharisees failed in God's law as well, in the teaching of God's law, let me say. And that is, they often made provision for divorce that the Bible did not make. And that Jesus here is actually correcting some of the incorrect and false teachings that the Pharisees had with regard to marriage and divorce. And so Luke summarizes it here. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, why does Jesus say this? Well, because the Pharisees had been distorting the teaching of Moses. I want you to turn with me for a minute to Deuteronomy chapter 24, please. Because I need to really set the table so we can understand properly. What is Jesus explaining here about marriage and divorce? Matthew, in his gospel, gives, goes into a little more detail than Luke does. But in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in the first few verses, we find this. This is the law of God 
given by Moses to the people of God under the inspiration of the spirit. Look at verse one in Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the, her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the law of God here is saying if a man marries a woman and he finds some kind of immorality within her conduct that violates the, the vows of the marriage, that he was permitted to write her a certificate of divorce and send her off. Now, the trouble is, is that the Pharisees had perverted the teaching of Moses here. But the Pharisees began, according to commentators on the Bible, give, uh, give all kinds of superficial reasons even for permitting divorce. And they, and they, they come to Jesus and they say, is it permissible to divorce? And so what Jesus does here is he's saying, you have to understand that Moses here is giving us this law, not because it's supposed to be the normative, but because God is dealing with a redeemed people who still yet have hardness of heart. And that is, there is still, even within the redeemed community, those who commit adultery and, and commit fornication and indecency. And in those situations, you are permitted to divorce. But that, that had been distorted as a means of all manner of excuses. And that, so that rather than having a high view of marriage, the Pharisees had perverted it and actually had a low view. And so in order to demonstrate this, what does Jesus do? He takes us back to the original institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bible, turn with me there to Genesis chapter 2. Now, this is important, I think, in our day as well. I think for decades, the church has been guilty of looking the other way at unbiblical divorces, and I think it has opened the way for all manner of confusion with respect to marriage, even now with the so-called gay marriage or homosexual marriage, where now our government is permitting men to marry other men and women to marry other women. And I think the church shares some of the blame for that, because I think when we were not upholding God's word with regard to marriage, what was happening was Marriage was becoming increasingly seen as a commodity that could be dispensed with if it no longer satisfies for any kind of vain, immaterial type of reason. And when that is becomes the view of marriage, well, then marriage is open and subject to be redefined. If marriage is simply something of a matter of convenience and when it's no longer convenient, you can get out of the marriage. Well, then why can't marriage be something for others? If a man can have multiple wives, the argument goes, why can't a man have one faithful man as a husband? And so that's, I think, how we found ourselves here. 
So I think we need to be careful that we not make too many assumptions that we understand what marriage is all about. There's a lot of confusion out in the culture. And maybe some of you even today have questions about what is marriage all about? So look with me at Genesis chapter two and let's look at verse 18 here. Because this is where Jesus himself takes us when he's addressing this subject of marriage and divorce with the Pharisees. Now, Moses writes under this inspiration of the spirit, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that is Adam to be alone. All right. So, boys and girls, Adam is in the garden by himself. I will make him a helper suitable for him. That is, he will make a help me one who is compatible to Adam in every way. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. So there's the lions and the bears and the giraffes and the alligators and every bird of the sky. There's your various kinds of birds, all you birders out there. God created the birds and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So man here has dominion. He has authority. Uh, that the understanding of naming means authority. Parents have authority over their children. They named their children. They have an authority over them. Man names the creatures that God makes and has authority as one made in the image of God over them. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So there's nobody who corresponds to the man. So, boys and girls, as much as we love our cats and our dogs, they cannot do the same uh, for man in the way that another human being can. In the, in, they cannot provide the level of fellowship that the woman would provide for Adam. So what is God going to do here, boys and girls? Well, I think you know, don't you? Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out or from the man. And then what is the application? Moses tells us in verse 24 and 25. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. They shall become one flesh. There's a union there that should not be broken. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So notice here that. God is pronouncing the goodness of his creation, but there is one aspect of the creation that was not good, and that was that that man was by himself. He is an image bearer of God, and yet he had no fellowship corresponding to his own nature. And so God declares this to be not good. And so God seeks to remedy that by the institution of marriage. And so we see that marriage is not, as feminists would say, a byproduct of the fall. This is not some invention of man in order to tyrannize the woman. This is a creation ordinance. This is prior to the fall. This is prelapsarian. This is something along with work. Uh, 
Work is not a curse. Work has been cursed because of the fall, but work is good. There was work to do. Name the animals. Tend to the garden. Marriage, likewise, is a creation ordinance. It is something that is good. Proverbs says he who finds a wife finds what is good. So this was the first reason for marriage. And we need to understand that the first reason for marriage is companionship. It's fellowship. Um, There are other aspects to marriage. Procreation, of course. Building up the holy seed of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. uh, That children be nurtured in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And that God might be pleased by his spirit to use that institution for the furtherance of his kingdom. But the first and primary reason is that of fellowship, of companionship. Um, Now, man is put to sleep and God takes a rib from Adam. Now, why is that? Well, because we are to see that Eve has the same essence as Adam and yet is distinct from him. Um, In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 7, we are told that woman was made for the man. Uh, The woman is a gift from God to the man. Husbands must treasure their wife because of this reason. Even as Jesus Christ loves the church, his bride, husbands, you are to love your wife, to die for her, to wash her with the water of the word. Ephesians chapter 5 Uh, Verse 25 to 27 talks about uh, this very thing that uh, husbands, you are to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in the way you relate to your wife. Uh, Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and coming into this world to take our place, to die for our sins and to atone for the sins. Now, of course, we uh, do not atone In the same way, Jesus atones for our sins, the the sins of our wife. But we are to express, nevertheless, that kind of love and devotion. Men should be astonished and at times, I think, overwhelmed by the standard that God has set before you as to how to love your wife. It's a perfect standard of divine love in human form in Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus Christ for the church is the standard. There is no greater love than this, that the Son of God should become a man and lay down his life for us. There is no greater love than this. And if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, I want to invite you to come to know Jesus because you will never know love in its best and purest form until you know the love of God in Jesus Christ. And you'll never be the husband you need to be if you don't know the love of Jesus Christ. Because the love with which you are to love your wife, you must receive from God through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and so we, we love our wife best by loving her second. By loving Christ. Having faith in the Lord Jesus. Drawing from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We then, by God's Spirit, are enabled to lay down our own lives. Boys and girls, this is something you need to think about. Young men, this is why you need to study the gospel. One of the reasons, among many, you need to study the gospel. It's to help you to become a a better husband, a better father. 
Galatians chapter two, verse 20 says this, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Christ loved me. He gave himself for me and I receive that love of Christ and I go and I love my wife, my children like that. Ephesians one seven in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And we could go on. Ephesians chapter two speaks of this love by God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. Ephesians five two: walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Philippians two, I already commented on in prayer that God or excuse me, Christ, I'm not considering it equality, a thing to be grasped, emptied himself, not of his divinity, not as the liberals say, emptied himself of the prerogatives of being the son of God, emptied himself of the privileges. He became a bondservant for us. He laid down his life for us. Romans 5, 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So again and again and again, the New Testament is always reminding us of this infinite love of God that angels look into and can see no bottom. It has no height. It has no width. It has no depth. It has no breadth. It's an infinite love. God pours out his infinite love upon Unholy objects, sinners that we are in Jesus Christ. And now he tells us this is the kind of marriage that we are to have. A marriage that reflects the love of God for his church in Jesus Christ. The man is to die to himself for the sake of his wife. He, the man must be mortifying his own sin nature. He must be denying himself. He may not live as he did before he was married. Very important, young men. When you take a wife, you may not marry. I mean, excuse me, you may not continue to live as though you were a single man. Your priorities have been radically altered now. You have a tremendous responsibility now to put your wife and her needs, her desires uh, above your own. Even conjugal love is to be self-denying. Many men look at conjugal relationship with anticipation. That is fine and good. But we also need to see it as what we give, not just receive. Christ gave himself because he loved us. He delighted in us. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18, verse 20 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be exhilarated with her love. First Peter chapter three, verse seven says, honor your wife as the weaker vessel. It's a tendency for men to disrespect weakness. Men can get impatient uh, when the wife, when his wife doesn't get to the point. Uh, Men need to learn patience. Men need to realize it's her weakness uh, is not to be understood as a problem. It, 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 in much the same way that China has a weakness to it because it has an elegance to it, a beauty to it. The weakness is, is, is not to be understood as 
something to be solved. The weakness here is to be appreciated. That she, the woman, is made differently than the man. And we need to be careful that we love our wife, that we not subject her to ridicule or touchy humor, as the Puritans would call it. You know what that is. Humor that has a little sting, a bite to it. What is, what is the love to do? What is the love to do? It is to reflect the love of God in Jesus Christ. But the love that we have in marriage is to also lead to holiness and sanctification. And, and Paul brings this out in Ephesians 5, verse 26. And, and when you begin to see this, I, I, and you say, why, why are you going in all this? Because I want you to see the subject of marriage and divorce in this context here. Because I think when you see the, the union that is involved in marriage, as it reflects the union you have with Jesus Christ, we begin to see, I think, the awfulness of divorce. Our union with a spouse is to lead us to holiness, that we would be like God, like Jesus Christ himself, that we would grow in grace. The Bible says that husbands are to sanctify their wife. That is, that he is to wash her with the water of the word, that she be set apart unto God. Christ didn't die just to justify us. He did do that, but also to sanctify us, to make us holy, inherently holy. A view of Christianity that justifies only and never sanctifies is a false gospel. John 17, verse 19, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus even prayed this point. He said, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus is preparing for his sacrifice for his bride. Jesus is praying this high priestly prayer for himself and for his wife prior to what he's about to do on the cross. And what does he pray? He prays that his atoning death would lead to the sanctification of his wife. Titus 2.14 Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. Why did Christ die? To deliver us, redeem us from lawlessness. Deliver us from sin, continuing in it, to make us people who do good deeds, who do the things that God is pleased with. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A couple more verses. Hebrews 1.3, when he made a purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. And then John 17, 15, I think y'all, got, y'all were discussing this in Sunday school. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Marriage is for holiness. Marriage is for growth and grace. Marriage is so that we would be conformed to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. John Stott, uh, in his commentary, says that the water and the word here 
that Paul mentions as he talks about marriage. He equates it to the sacrament of baptism and the reading and the preaching of the word. The gospel visibly shown in baptism and the gospel preached. John Calvin reminds us, commenting on this verse from Ephesians, that the word and the sacrament must go together. God is washing us by word and sacrament. And why? So that we would be presented to the Father. That we, the bride, should be appearing before God's holy throne, glorified in body and spirit. Let me make a couple applications here for you. First of all, to you men. If you are to love your wife in a way that she will grow in sanctification and holiness, then you must lead the way in spiritual growth yourself. One of the problems that pastors regularly encounter is that the wife is pursuing sanctification more than the husband. This is a regular, if not chronic problem, not in every home, but in many homes, even in the best of churches. Too often the husband is not pursuing his own growth in grace and he's falling or lagging behind the wife. What is the woman to do? Should she retard her own growth in grace because her husband is? Absolutely not. She should continue to be seeking Christ. And so this is a call. Husband to to grow in grace. Don't allow your wife to be outpacing you. Pursue the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be the husband you need to be. You, you are the theological leader of the home. It's not a maybe about it. You are to be the, the priest of the home, praying with and for your wife. You are to be an active student of Scripture. Your wife is supposed to be able, from time to time, turn to you to... Talk about theological things and questions. You know, one of the hardest jobs women have is answering the questions of little children in the home. Sinclair Ferguson has said, if to be a mom is to be a theologian. And you as men, as husbands, must lead the way in, in studying the things of God to be able, as God gives you grace, to answer those questions in the home. And, and children can can do it very easily, can't they? Mom, I want to think about the Trinity. How far are you going to get in that conversation? What can you do? Let me give you maybe a little bit of pious advice here for the men. If you find yourself not progressing as maybe your conscience is testifying that you should be, let me give you some suggestions what you might be able to do. Number one, call me. Call an elder in the church. Let's get together. Let's talk about it. Let's meet. Let's for lunch, for breakfast, after work, whenever. And let's talk about what we can do to help you um, with that. Call one of the elders in the church. Ask them for help. One of the best places to start is simply by admitting you need some help. Maybe we could put a a book in your hand that will help you. I know men often are not 
always readers. But let's take baby steps and just read a couple pages a day. If, if that's where we are, then let's just start there. We're not asking you to complete Turton's, you know, three volumes this summer. Let's just let's take some more simple books and try and begin to work on some of those things that you need to work on. You know, I uh, I am, you know, a real promoter of this. And even among Presbyterian circles, this book is on hard times. And it's the simplest little book. Even a man would read this. It's it's the shorter catechism. It's 107 basic questions and answers that you can learn the, the, the basics that you need to know about God and about the law and about the gospel and about Christian evangelical faith and our duties, uh, about the Lord's Prayer, about the Lord's Supper, baptism. Uh, all of these things are contained in this little book. Read this book. Um, go over it as a family. Memorize it. Um, it's a real help. This is basically, what is this little book? People say, why, why study the catechism? It's systematic theology. In 32 tiny pages. Tiny pages. It's just it's a basic systematic theology course. That's all this is. It was put together by the Westminster Divines in the 17th century, and I think it's still a great tool. Let me get back here then to the subject at hand with Luke. Jesus, when dealing with this subject of marriage and divorce, went back to the garden, to its institution. The marriage of Adam and Eve was to be a prototype for marriages in general. There was, there was the leaving and the cleaving principle that many of you are familiar with. That, that what we saw was that Adam was brought into a vital union with his wife Eve. And it's a picture of that vital union of Jesus the second or the last Adam with us, his wife. That union brought about by faith in him. We now become one. Christ is in us. And we have he is the head and we are the body. And likewise, marriage is to be a picture of this where you young people, you will one day, by God's grace, you will leave your home. And most of you, unless called to the vocation of singleness, you will probably enter into marriage and you will cleave to that husband, to that wife. You will become one flesh now. Sin obviously has disrupted this picture by the fall. And so now marriage is tainted by sin and there there are problems in marriage and sometimes those problems do lead to a biblical divorce when there is adultery. Uh, the law said that if that if one was caught in adultery what was the penalty? The penalty was a a capital penalty. And when the capital penalty was executed upon the guilty party, the widow would have been free to remarry. And so I do believe that the Bible does teach, even in the gospel age, that adultery is a significant violation 
of that marital union that the innocent party has the right to separate lawfully. And there may be very unusual circumstances of abandonment where it might be permitted, where the spirit of that covenant is broken. But that is it. The church needs to be firm in holding our line on marriage because it is such an important institution to us, not just by common grace, but it is a picture of special grace. And that the operative principle should be in our mind what God has put together. Let no man put us under. Amen.